Okay. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Lord our God, thank you for our time together this evening. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for letting us know the things that are yet to come so that we should not be caught asleep, we should not be taken by surprise, caught off guard, but we know what is to come. Help us, Lord God, to be strong through the work of your Holy Spirit. Help me to teach tonight. Help us all to apprehend these uh, sometimes difficult things in this particular chapter of Revelation. And we give this time to you and our hearts in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. So let's see how many we have. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 17, 18. Good. Um, welcome, you guys. All right. Uh, if anybody has an extra copy. Oh, great. Okay, that'd be great. Okay. Uh, well, I think this is about as big a group as we've had in person in recent times. It's nice to see that. All right. So Revelation chapter 16. Uh, it's part two. We're going to pick up tonight at verses 12 through 21. We should be able to finish the chapter tonight. I say should because I just never know. Uh, let me introduce this for us. The Battle of Armageddon, or if you prefer World War III, or the last battle, whatever you call it, will be the final and most lethal military conflict in all of human history. It will be the event that leads to Jesus' return to Earth. And it represents the ultimate expression of human hatred and depravity. And not surprisingly, ground zero will be Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. 25 years ago, I imagined the Battle of Armageddon to probably be 50 to 100 years off in the, in the future. 25 years ago, I thought uh, Armageddon's probably not exactly right around the corner. It might be 50 years, it might be 100 years. We don't know, but I thought it was still a little ways off. Ten years ago, I imagined it was still yeah, maybe a good 20 to 25 years in the future. But given the atrocity committed against Israel on October 7th, which ought to have engendered the sympathy of the world and it's the sympathy towards Israel, but instead instigated a worldwide outpouring of Jew hatred toward not just towards Jews, but towards Israel itself as a nation. I think the sympathy lasted about 36 hours. And then right away, the switch. And um, you know, Israel is the only nation in the world that has to defend itself for defending itself. Anyway, but the events since October 7th and the worldwide outpouring, not of sympathy towards Israel, but of hatred towards Israel, has now got me thinking that, uh, that it's even closer. That it's even closer the Battle of Armageddon, the nations of the world gathering to in an attempt to destroy Israel, uh, Jews and Christians being targeted, 
Did you hear about that uh, pastor in Arizona, in Glendale, Arizona? Just out on the street, out in front of the church where he's a pastor, preaching and inviting people and got shot in the head. This was a week and a half ago, I believe. Still in critical condition. Um, he's on life support. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have vital signs and all that. I mean, but right now, um, and we're, we should pray for him. Um, I can't remember his name. Schmidt? I think it might be Schmidt. Anyway, this pastor, Lord, we just lift him up to you, this pastor in Glendale, Arizona, that you might bring him out of the coma, out of critical condition, and restore him fully. May his, um, may his recovery be a praise and a testimony to you. But anyway, so people, there's, there's such a lack of humanity, such a lack of just basic sympathy and kindness. It's gone. College students who used to fancy themselves idealistic and sympathetic, they're the ones who are pouring out the most hatred against Jews and against Israel right now, to the point of tearing down posters that have the pictures of the people that had been kidnapped by Hamas. And these college students on these university campuses, supposedly the place of enlightenment, are chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. If you were to ask them which river and which sea, I bet you 70% of them don't know which river they're talking about or which sea or what that actually means. Because from the river means from the Jordan, which borders Israel on its east, to the sea, the Mediterranean, which Israel borders on its west, and it's very narrow in between. Um, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What does that mean? It means no more Jews in what is now called Israel. The whole thing is to become Palestine. How many Jews live in Hamas or live in, um, in Gaza? None, because we pulled out in 2005 and handed it over to the Palestinian Authority so that they could govern themselves. And they didn't. They elected Hamas to be their government. Hamas to be their government. So anyway, all this to say that when we talk about Armageddon, the end of the world, the nations of the world coming together to annihilate Israel, I used to think it was a bit farther off than I do now. I see now that humanity is so under the influence, by and large, of Satan, the prince of the power of the airwaves, right? They may as well call him the prince of the power of the university system. Um, they may as well call him the prince of the power of the State Department. Um, it's terrible. So anyway, I imagine things to be closer than I used to. So um, let me take a moment and welcome others who have come in uh, to, to watch online. Uh, Yo and um, Donna and uh, let's see, Betsy, Dina, Kina, Michael and Virginia, Millie, Jill and Larry, and Patsy. All right. We've got people watching all the way from San Diego, California right now to Florida. 
So we're at least coast to coast. If any of you are watching from other countries, let me know. Uh, but anyway, we've got uh, a number of people watching. My dear friend from seminary, Scott, is watching. Good to, good to know you're watching, Scott. All right, so let's now go right into Revelation chapter 16. We're picking up at verse 12. This is angel number six of how many? Seven. A lot of sevens in Revelation. You could have just guessed that because it's Revelation. and Everything is a multiple of seven, it seems like. So we're going to pick up. Oh, and uh, we've got uh, Deb watching in Canada. So we have both coasts and at least two countries. All right. And let's read verses 12 through 16 to start. And then I'm going to discuss a few things with us. Um, and welcome to Helena. All right, verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and who's the dragon? Satan. So, un, right, coming out of the mouth of the dragon. And out of the mouth of the beast, who's the beast? Antichrist. And out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, with, with apologies to frogs. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs, performing signs, miracles. We'll talk about this which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And now Yeshua speaks up in the midst of this. In some of your Bibles, this may be in red ink. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place, which in Hebrew is called Armageddon, or as we now know it, Armageddon. And if you saw my title for tonight's Bible study, it's Armageddon out of here. So let's talk about geography. Now, those of you who are here um, have in the back of your notes a map. I wanted to give you, and I'll hold it here for those of you who are watching to see. The blue line, okay, so here's Israel, this little teeny tiny sliver of land. And um, we have uh, the, uh, I need my glasses once again. All right, so we've got Israel. We've got, um, oh, Helps if I hold it right side up. All right, so Israel's over here. This blue line that cuts right through Iraq, that's the Euphrates River. Cuts through Iraq, it cuts through Syria, and empties out in the northern Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so that's, that's the Euphrates. Cuts right through Iraq. Now look at the nations represented on this map. So here's Israel. We've got Egypt, Jordan, Syria. Turkey, Sudan, um, Saudi Arabia, 
Yemen, Egypt, uh, Oman, and to the, uh, to the east from here would be Pakistan, and north of there, up here at the top, is Iran. All Islamic nations, all nations that uh, basically want to see the Jewish people dead and Israel obliterated. Even Egypt, which had a peace treaty with Israel, is starting to walk that back. The parliament, or whatever they call their government in Egypt, is starting to talk about joining in against Israel. Meanwhile, I don't know if you guys remember this, but in 1967, the Six-Day War, Israel took all of the Sinai. We captured all of Gaza and the entire Sinai Peninsula, which is bigger than the whole nation of Israel. But we gave it back to Egypt, right? In the late, was it the, uh, when was that brokered? Uh, 79, 75, it was basically Israel gave the entire Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt. E and by the way, Egypt didn't want Gaza because they didn't want to have to deal with having Palestinians as part of their population. Um, but we had the whole Sinai. You know, Jackie Mason, Jewish comedian, used to joke, we had the whole Sinai. We didn't want it. We gave it back. Why? There's no boardwalk. What are you going to do? We gave the whole Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt, and now in exchange for peace. Just like in 2005, we gave Gaza to the Palestinians as a gesture of peace. And the Jewish people who had been living there had to leave. They had to vacate because no Jews are allowed in, in the Palestinian territories. That's, by the way, the real definition of apartheid. No Jews allowed. Meanwhile, you've got a quarter of a million, maybe more, uh, Arab Muslims living as full citizens in Israel. They're doctors, they're artists, they're school teachers, they're members of the government, they're judges. Uh, but somehow Israel is the apartheid state. Do you see how backwards we've got it? And, and you'll hear this from supposedly educated college students. There's going to be hell to pay. All right, so I want us to just think about the geography for a minute. Okay, this time I'll hold it right side up. So here's Israel, size of New Jersey. Here are a number of um, Islamic countries, right? Egypt, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen. By the way, they're firing rockets from Yemen into Israel. Uh, Saudi Arabia, we've got Oman, we've got Pakistan to the east, Iran and Iraq and Turkey. So again, that blue line going up, right, cutting right through Iraq and going up into Syria, that blue line is the Euphrates River. So once that river is dried up, what's to stop armies from Afghanistan, Iran, Oman and Pakistan from literally just marching right on across. And apparently that's what's going to happen based on this, but not this alone, not just Revelation 16. Revelation chapter 16 is simply reiterating in a vision what Zechariah centuries earlier was given in a vision 
of the nations of the world amassing together and God drawing them, God uh, assembling them together, and they're going to try to destroy Israel. And it's very interesting because even here, it says that um, uh, th these, these demonic spirits performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. In Zechariah 12 and again in Zechariah 14, God says, I'm going to gather them together. So who's to blame? These nations that hate Israel or God? Who's to blame? Well, think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not a robot or an automaton. He was a human being with a will of his own, and he refused to let the Jewish people go. And then when he finally, after all these plagues, and he's like desperate, all right, go, go. <laughs> right? And then he changes his mind one more time. Well, in Exodus, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart repeatedly. But it also says one or two times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So in other words, God is going to allow the proclivities of these human beings to do what they want to do, and he's going to confirm them in that. They think they're coming to annihilate Israel. God is assembling them so that they might experience his judgment. And defeat and destruction so okay but let's talk about this okay so we got the geography you can see how the stage is set all these hostile countries um in hebrew there in in the text of uh of scripture in one or two places you have this thing called aram naharaim nahar is river Aram was the Old Testament name for what we call Syria. Okay, so the Arameans were Syrians. Okay, so if you look at your map, you see where Syria is. It's to the north and east of Israel, bordering Israel at Golan, part of the Golan Heights. Okay, um, but it was called Aram Naharaim, Syria of or Aram of the two rivers. You got the Euphrates, and what's the other big one from Genesis? No, that's Egypt. What are the two big rivers in Genesis? The Tigris, right? The Tigris and the Euphrates. In Genesis, you have four rivers mentioned the, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. The Tigris and the Euphrates are these tandem rivers at points. They come very close together, and then they separate, but they're both very large, large rivers. It's not like wading a little river, you know, uh, or wading across uh, the Rouge, <laughs> the Rouge River. You'd still get pretty wet, but it's not like that. These are raging rivers. Okay, these are massive rivers. All right. Uh, and in Greek, we have a term, Mesopotamia, right? Mesopotamia. People will talk about Mesopotamia as having been what we call the cradle of civilization, right? The Mesopotamian Valley, right? That's where everything all started. Well, meso means between, in the midst of. Uh, uh, on some elevators in certain office buildings, there's a mezzanine, met from everything from Greek. 
everything from Greek, right? Mezzo, in between. Uh, Mezzo-soprano, somebody who's between a, uh, an alto and a soprano. Mezzo-soprano. So mezzo means between, and potamos is river. So potamia is rivers, plural. So Mesopotamia, between the two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. Now you know how we got the term Mesopotamia. See that? You can just, just impress all your friends. Hey, you've heard of Mesopotamia? Do you know what it means? Right? Between the two rivers. All right. By the way, the word hippopotamus is from Greek. Ipos is horse. Potamos is river. So a hippopotamus is a river horse. There you go. You're welcome. Okay. So we've got unclean spirits represented by frogs out of the mouths of this unholy trinity, this counterfeit trinity, as it were. Um, why do you think frogs? Tell me out loud. Don't make me. Tell me out loud if you think. And feel free to type it in. What, why frogs? What, what do you think is the intent? First of all, honestly, I think frogs are a little bit gross. But God created them. They're his creatures. You know. Um, why do you think frogs? Give you a hint. In the previous plagues, what happens to the waters, the oceans, the rivers? Turns to what? Blood. Frogs? Second plague. In Egypt. Okay. <clears throat> so, anyway. Yes, very good. <laughs> Scott says, Hebrew and Greek within 20 minutes. Let's go. All right. Um, all right. By the way, welcome to uh, Rosalind in uh, Georgia, to my dear friend Jeff Curley, um, to uh, Judy and Doug. And to um, Randy and to Mike and Heather. Okay. Anyway, yeah, um, and, and Cindy mentions there are some frogs that are poisonous. Anybody ever see the movie Apocalypto? Takes those little darts and pokes them into the back of the head of the frog to get the poison out of it. And then, yeah, it was gross. Anyway, unclean spirits represented by frogs. A, frogs are kind of icky and gross, but I think we're supposed to think Egypt. Blood, frogs, etc. Okay. Uh, but it says that these are unclean spirits, which should not surprise us. Satan, the father of lies, the arch enemy of God and of everything that's good, uh, the consummate liar, the father of all lies. We would expect unclean spirit from him. Also, the Antichrist, who is a human being, but empowered by Satan, so he can do miracles, but unclean, deceiver, right? Antichrist against Messiah, a counterfeit, and the false prophet. They're in league together. Unclean spirits, unclean spirits, and unclean spirits. And it says that the kings of the earth are drawn together through lying signs and wonders. But think about it. If Satan wanted to perform some kind of miracle to deceive people, could he do it 
if God didn't want it to happen. He couldn't. He doesn't have the authority. He can't do anything without God removing his hand and letting him do it. I give you Job. So God lets this happen. He lets the Antichrist, he lets the false prophet deceive people, empowered by Satan to do it. They perform signs. They perform miracles. And people who don't bother to study the scriptures but somehow believe in the supernatural are going to be awed and amazed by these miracles. And because they don't have a foundation in scripture, they're going to think, oh, well, this person has to be from God. How could they do this? Right? Not remembering or just not even being aware that in Deuteronomy, even if somebody performs a miracle, but if they tell you something contrary to what God is teaching, you're not to follow them. Because Satan, God allows Satan to perform false signs. So in this case, signs are performed, wonders are performed, and the kings of the nations that are already hateful towards Israel and the Jews are going to be enticed to come. Let's get rid of that. The last vestige, right? The Christians and the Jews, right? The last vestige of, of anything having to do with God, let's get rid of them. And the kings are going to say, well, well you, have, you obviously have the power and authority, all these miracles, let's go. And they're going to be allowed to do the thing that they want to do. They are going to want to destroy Israel. And God lets this happen. And the dried up Euphrates River, I'm pointing, you know, for those of you watching, that's east from where we're sitting. Yeah. So if we're in Israel, Syria's up here, Jordan is here, Turkey's down there, Egypt's down here. The, uh, the Euphrates River is east, cutting through Iraq. And that river is going to be dried up. And God's going to let it happen. The Euphrates River is going to dry up and the nations Iran and Iraq, which are right on the other side, are going to come across together with all the other nations. Uh, so the dried up Euphrates River is going to make it easy travel for them. And you notice that this is called the War of the Great Day of God the Almighty. That's an interesting name for a war. The war of the great day of God the Almighty. They want to destroy Israel. God is going to have his way with them. They think they're going to succeed. Not going to go that way. And then I ask a question here. Between Zechariah chapters 12 and 14 and here, Revelation chapter 16, knowing that God is going to destroy those armies, why would anybody in their right mind participate with those armies? Why would anybody knowingly take part in that war knowing the outcome? <laughs> because they don't know. You and I have the benefit of reading the word of God, which tells us what's going to happen. By the way, if you ever want to have fun uh, and start a conversation and 
turn it to the gospel and you want to have a little fun, just say to somebody you're talking to, hey, you know what? I know the future. Oh, really? Yeah, I know the future. And, uh, and then you can explain to them why it is you know the future and that they too can know the future if they want and if they'll do a little reading. Of course, most people want to know the future of the stock market and who's going to win the Super Bowl. They don't really want to know what's going to happen geopolitically. All right. All right, and it takes place, it says, they gathered them together, verse 16, to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Har is mountain. Megiddo is that region. It's up a little bit in the north. It could be a reference. To, see, Megiddo is a region, the name of a region, more than particularly a mountain. I mean, yeah, we call it the Mount of Megiddo, but you know why it's a mountain? It's actually a tell. It, technically, it's Tel Megiddo, T-E-L. Tel Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo. Because over the many, many centuries, something like 25 successive civilizations have built right on top of what was there before. So it's become this huge tell. And it's a nice little hike. And you have a beautiful view from the top of the whole Jezreel Valley. But Mount Tabor is there. Um, Mount Gilboa is there. So it's possible that one or, or the other of those mountains is the mountain of Megiddo. But Megiddo, just think of it as there's the region there. And that's where the final battle uh, kind of centers. And Megiddo has quite a history. If you look at 2 Chronicles 35, and you just take the note, you know, we're not going to do it right now. But in 2 Chronicles 35, you have uh, uh, Josiah, one of the great kings of Judah, one of the only great kings of Judah, died in a needless battle against uh, Pharaoh Necho, who was actually not trying to conquer Israel at all. He was on his way right on through to go up to conquer, I believe, Aram, Syria. And he's on his way, and Josiah intercepts him. And Pharaoh says, don't get in my way. Your God told me to do this. Don't get in my way. I'm, I have no quarrel with you. I'm on my way up to conquer them. Josiah wouldn't let him pass, engaged in war, and good King Josiah died in the plains of Megiddo. This great king of Israel, the whole nation was so grieved. Um, so there's a long storied tragic history at Megiddo and in the whole Jezreel Valley. Um, Alexander the Great, not Alexander the Great, what am I saying? Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, at one point upon seeing the Jezreel Valley for himself said, this is the ultimate, this would be the ultimate place to have a war. It's flat and it's wide open and there's just room for millions. All right, I do want us to look at Zechariah chapter 12. See, I make certain assumptions here at our Shema Bible study that everybody knows Zechariah 12 by now because I drill it home all the time. In fact, we're going to be singing a song this coming Shabbat 
that in part is based on Zechariah chapter 12. But I shouldn't assume that everybody has read Zechariah chapter 12. So would you open with me there? And we're going to read the first 11 verses. Zechariah is the um, third from the last um, book. Oop, 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 Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. It's the second to the last book of the uh, Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. So look at Zechariah chapter 12 with me. Let's look at the first 11 verses. And again, we're reading this. Not It's not that I think you don't believe what you read in Revelation 16, but I want you to see the consistency of God's message all throughout scripture and across many, many centuries. Zechariah 12, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Here's what he says. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. Uh, in other words, it's like drinking something that not to make you drunk, but to like a hallucinogenic kind of a thing, to make you nuts. I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And we looked at that map, right? We looked at that map, and you see the peoples that are around. Turkey, Iran, Yemen, Iraq, right? Um and when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It's not just the city, it's the whole nation. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. Ever gotten a hernia from trying to lift something that was heavier than you could lift? Or pulled a muscle? Or did something? They're going to try to destroy Jerusalem and it's not going to go well. And it says, verse 3, last part of verse 3, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. See, now that's the troubling thing because I can understand why, you know, you've got Egypt hates Israel, you've got Iran hates Israel, Iraq hates Israel, Yemen hates Israel, Syria hates Israel, Lebanon hates Israel, everybody, all these nations hate Israel. But this says all the nations of the world. And I'm thinking to myself, what does Papua New Guinea have against Israel? What, you know, what does uh, San Salvador have against Israel? What does the United States have against Israel? But you see what's happening around the world right now. I mean, of all places, in Sydney, Australia, which is considered one of the Western nations, you know, with good universities. And, and did you see what was happening? Three days after this attack on Israel, a bunch of people were gathered in front of the Sydney Opera House and were yelling, gas the Jews. And it says here in Zechariah chapter 12, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. I used to think, how could that be? Now I get it. Verse 4, in that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah 
while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And he goes on in verses 5 and 5 through uh, 5 and 6 that he's going to strengthen the Jewish people to battle. And then verse 7, the Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In other words, he's going to defend the whole nation. Verse 8, in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who's feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And look at verse 9. This is God speaking. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Wow. Well, we'll stop there for now. And so, in the midst of Revelation chapter 16, in the midst of the announcement of the coming war of all wars, right? We thought World War II was going to be the war to end all wars. Um, it isn't. It wasn't. This will be the war. And in the midst of it, what does Yeshua say? Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. This is not Yeshua telling us, make sure you stay dressed. Okay, you know, don't go skinny dipping. Don't, don't, don't walk around naked. That's not what he's talking about at all. What does it mean to be clothed when Yeshua is talking about it? It means to walk in the faith to maintain our faith, right? And sometimes it's harder than others to maintain our faith. Sometimes, don't we all have times of doubt, times of struggle, times of, God, why is this happening? Or, Lord God, you feel, I, I, I don't even feel your presence, right? We go through dry spells. We go through struggles. We go through doubts. Anybody who says, I have never doubted for one minute is, is fibbing. Okay, but he says, blessed is the one who stays awake. In other words, be aware of these things. Continue to follow me, he says, right? Continue in the faith. Keep those garments. And it's a sobering warning, but why do you think he inserts that here? Why do you think in the midst of this vision of the nations of the world gathering to destroy Israel, Yeshua speaks up and says, now, y'all make sure that you stay awake. You stay in the faith. You stay firm. Why, it, why is it inserted here? Why is this audibly given to John right in the middle of the vision? Or as he was writing it, did the Spirit of God move him to insert those? Did he hear it audibly? Did Yeshua say that? Or did the Spirit of God say, this is what Messiah says, and write it? Um But there are some corollary readings that go with this. I'd like us to look at them. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. It's just a little bit of a right turn if you're still at Zechariah. Matthew chapter 24. And by the way, brothers and sisters, this is, there are certain passages of scripture that you really need to just, even if you don't have them memorized, you know where they are. 
You know where to look and you know where to direct others if you are teaching others. Matthew chapter 24 is what we call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He's with his disciples. He is about to be betrayed that same night, but he has a sermon to give. And in Matthew chapter 24, he tells us what the end of the age is going to be like, what's going to happen. And can you understand then that this book is called Apocalypsis, Revelation, meaning the unveiling. He wants us to know. So let's look at Matthew 24, verses 42 to 46. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So we need to be about Yeshua's business. We need to just follow his marching orders. Now, what did he tell us to do? He says, um, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, I want you to try to figure out who the Antichrist is. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, I want you to try to figure out uh, what mystery Babylon is. No. What are our marching orders, you guys? to win people to the Lord and mentor them, disciple them, turn them into disciples. And then they in turn are to mentor others, lead them to the Lord and mentor others. We are to be reproducing the faith. That's what we're to be doing. I confess I'm as big a failure as they come, but this is our calling, right? Win people to the Lord, instruct them. All right, uh, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter five. You need to take another right turn. I know I said we were going to finish chapter 16. We might. We might. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. By the way, I want to welcome uh, Chad and welcome my dear friend Gary, who's in Titusville, Florida, watching. Good to have you all watching. Um, all right, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 6. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. They will not escape, but you, Brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep, not literal sleep, but let us not just spiritually just kind of go on autopilot and not be paying attention, right? Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. 
Do you see the consistency of God's word? All the way through. All right. We have a thing. Rabbi Lauren has talked about it. Rabbi Jerry has talked about it at times, and I've talked about it at times. It's called normalcy bias. Normalcy bias is the term used to express this idea that, you know, I woke up this morning, I figured today was going to be pretty much like yesterday. And I figure I'll go to sleep tonight, and tomorrow will be pretty much like today. And we kind of go on, and we, we, we don't expect any kind of dramatic or sudden change. But historically, dramatic and sudden change has happened many times. And normalcy bias is just another word for us being asleep at the wheel, not seeing the writing on the wall, not paying attention to what's happening. Normalcy bias. Um, but, you know, adversity can work for good. Not, bad things happening are not always ultimately bad. Bad things are bad in and of themselves, but they can lead to better things if we're wise and we think about it. The angel pouring out his bowl on the Euphrates River is symbolic of judgment on the pagan nations. Again, remember, the Euphrates was one of the two great rivers that's part of what we call the cradle of civilization. Babylon was founded along the Euphrates River. Babylon is what is in what we would today call Iraq. And as we talked about, I don't know if it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, remember I was talking to you about Babylon and that before we just start to theorize what's Babylon, we need to understand what Babylon was historically going all the way back to Genesis and the founding of the city of Babel and the building of the Tower of Babel by Nimrod and company. And why did they build that tower? To make a name for themselves, right? And so the, it was an act of defiance against God. God was, wanted us spreading out. They said, no, we're going to all settle right here, build a big city. We're going to be the cat's meow, or we're going to build a tower with its top all the way to heaven, and we'll show him. There was a knowledge that God is there. They were not atheists. They were rebels. Not necessarily the same thing. So Babylon represents that. And so we have an angel pouring out that bowl, that the judgment on the Euphrates, um, man's defiance of God. So this is God's judgment. Let me read to you from uh, one of the commentaries that I typically use. Uh, this one is Steve Gregg. Um, and this is called Revelation Four Views. It tackles the historicist, the futurist. It, it tackles four different views. And considering the futurist, here's what he says. Since the nations of the whole world will be effectively under a single government during the tribulation, right, the Antichrist government, how will it be possible for there to be a world war at the end of the tribulation? We think of world wars as all these different countries fighting against each other, but they're not. They're all fighting, but they're going to fight Israel. And then they're going to start fighting each other because God is going to pour out that cup of reeling on them. 
So how will it be possible for there to be a world war at the end of tribulation if it's all one government? Two answers have been put forward. One answer suggests that the armies, all loyal to the beast, are gathered in anticipation of the second coming of Christ to make war against him and his heavenly armies. That the battle is against Christ seems to fit with Ladd's opinion that the drying up of the river is symbolic of the removal of the barrier which holds back the pagan hordes, the kings of the east, who join forces with the kings of the whole world to battle with the Messiah. Well, where is Messiah returning to? That was not an, uh, that was not rhetorical. Where in Israel? Mount of Olives, right? Jerusalem. That's where it's all going to happen. So, um, before we go on, think of Psalm 2. Do you guys know Psalm 2? It, it's one of those that it's easy to remember, to commit to memory. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples devise a vain thing, right? The kings of the earth take counsel together and the rulers take their stand against the Lord and against his Messiah, right? Let us throw off his yoke, right? We're not going to follow him, right? They're, they're trying, they're defiant towards God. And what does Psalm 2 go on to say? The Lord scoffs at them, right? And then he will answer them in his fury. And then what does he say? As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. You see, in coming against Israel, these nations are coming against the God of Israel. Now, true, the Jewish people, for the most part, are not following Messiah. But God never broke his covenant with them. And part of that covenant is we will always remain a people and he will always care for us. But there have been many times where he allowed evil to come upon us, right? We were not walking with him. He allowed nations to do what they were going to do. He allowed people to do what they were going to do. Even today, you know, what happened on October 7th, we have to admit God allowed that to happen. He was not obligated to stop that. Um, but even now, the IDF, as powerful and effective as they are, they're not looking to the Lord God of Israel to be their captain of the host, to be their commanding officer, to lead the battle, to win the victory. They're trusting in their own ways. But Psalm 2, right? The nations are going to rage against God, and God just sits there and goes, okay. Huh. Really? You're going to, okay. All right. But then he's going to speak to them in his fury. Okay, back to that commentary, Greg went on to say, the other possibility is that the final war will be one of rebellion and insurrection on the part of many nations against the beast's authority. Now, I don't tend to think that. I think they are walking right in concert with the beast. I believe that uh, all these nations are going to come against Israel and perhaps 
one of the popular modern theories about this is how do you have all the nations of the world gathered there? I mean, yeah, I get it, Egypt and Iraq and Iran, but um, United States, uh, El Salvador, New Guinea, you know, um, how does, how, it says all the nations. Does it mean every single last nation? Maybe not, but I mean all the nations. So one of the popular theories is that the United Nations, which has, by the way, its own standing army, will be, will conscript soldiers from all these nations. And it'll be a UN army attempting to destroy United Nations, united against Israel, united in serving the Antichrist, and by extension, Satan. That's a very popular theory. I'm not saying that's what it's going to be, though. I just want to go on record as saying I'm just presenting to you possible scenarios. But given the uh, given the hatred for Israel at the UN, uh, it, it doesn't surprise me. I I tend to go with the uh, the previous argument. It lines up better with Psalm two. Um, it lines up better with Zechariah 12. Uh, the nations assembling together in order to destroy Jerusalem and the Jews, not trying to destroy the Antichrist. All right. All right, verses 17 through, oh, you know what? Oh, do we try to finish? Oh, no. And I'll tell you why, because to cover 17 through 21 properly, we have to analyze what's going to happen to Jerusalem, but also we have to analyze Babylon. And there's a few more plagues. I thought we were going to get through chapter 16 in two sessions. <laughs> what was I thinking? But I apologize because I have been a bit long-winded about some of these things, but you understand my heart. And, and I think you join me. Our hearts are broken at what's going on right now in Israel to Jewish people worldwide, the just insanity uh, that's prevailing. So um, I think we will leave it there. It is 7.30. Let me take a moment and again, thank all of you who've been watching online. Really appreciate it. Forgive me that uh, I, I if there were questions there, I didn't get to them. There may very well have been. For example, Jill says, how long will it take for Euphrates River to dry up? Euphrates River is at risk of drying up due to climate change. I think this is going to be a supernatural thing, though. Uh, yeah, the rainfall has decreased there dramatically. Um, uh, some people are saying that it could be dried up by 2040. But to be honest with you, Jill, I think this is going to be a supernatural thing. God parted the waters of the Red Sea, like that, a wall of water over there, a wall of water over there, and dry ground. I think this is going to be a God thing. Says the angel poured out that bowl. And remember, these are bowls of God's wrath. The whole idea is these bowls represent God's payback to the world. And so I think it's going to be a supernatural thing that happened very suddenly. 
Anyway, I want to thank all of you who are watching. Thank you guys for being here tonight. Let's go ahead and pray and be reading this chapter. Go back through it. Um, if you have these notes, review the notes, review these other passages of scripture. Those of you um, online, if you'd like notes, I'll send them to Rabbi Jerry. They'll be made available. They're not the greatest notes I've ever put together, but it's enough for food for thought for you. So let's pray. Lord, our God, thank you not only for all that you've done, not only for the kindness you show us day to day, even now, but we thank you for what is to come. As painful as things are going to get on planet Earth, we can echo the words of our brother John, even so, come, Lord Yeshua. Help us, Lord God, to remain strong in the faith, to grow stronger in our faith day by day as we continue in your word. Help us to do the things that will help us to be strong to come together regularly and frequently, to encourage each other, to grow in our faith, to bring others into the faith. Help us to be those faithful servants that are doing what we're supposed to be doing when you do come. And thank you for our time together tonight. I pray that you give everybody safe travels home. And we commit all of this to you in the beautiful name of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Thanks, you guys. And thank you for watching. We will see you next time.